Thank you, Menno. Thank you, team. Good morning, everyone. If you have your Bibles, please turn to uh, Exodus chapter 3. Um, as we're doing that, the, the kids, you're welcome to head out to children's ministry. Uh, while the rest of us turn to Exodus uh, chapter 3. This morning, we're starting a, a new series. Uh, and I'm excited for the series. I, I think it's going to... Um, be eye-opening for, for us. Uh, the series we're starting this morning is called Ancient Images, uh, Prophetic Pictures that Point to Jesus. Uh, and what we're doing in this series is we're looking at these ancient images that we find in the Old Testament that then reappear in the New Testament uh, and do so connected with Jesus. And we're going to be looking at these uh, prophetic pictures that are in the Old Testament that, that, that pop up again in the New. And the reason we're doing this series is because we want uh, the, to show how these ancient images uh, point to just who Jesus is. We're going to be looking at how these prophetic pictures uh, reveal just what Jesus has done, what Jesus can do, and what Jesus will do. And so that's the point of this series. Our Bible is divided into two distinct sections. Uh, we have the Old Testament, uh, the ancient Hebrew scriptures, uh, and we have the New Testament, the uh, Greek uh, uh, scriptures. And these words, old and new, are, are, are a little bit unfortunate, actually, because they, they cause us to see the, the New Testament as somewhat better than the Old Testament. We have the Old Testament, uh, the, the outdated, the antiquated, the irrelevant, and then we have the New Testament, uh, the modern, uh, the contemporary, the relevant but the Old Testament is actually of utmost importance. And it serves a number of functions. The first collections of, of books records and tells us of the history of God's people. Uh, the book of wisdom teaches us how to lead wise lives. Uh, the books of poetry and, and, and song uh, help us to worship our Heavenly Father. Or they help us in desperate and dark times. The Old Testament has a number of very important functions. But one of the most important functions of the Old Testament is that it serves as a roadmap to point to Jesus the Messiah. The Old Testament is a roadmap that leads to Jesus. And this is exactly what Jesus himself points out after his uh, resurrection, but before he's made himself publicly known. He's made himself known to just a handful of people, and so it's not public yet uh, that he's alive. Jesus is walking with uh, two uh, Jesus followers who are heading to a, a, a place called Emmaus. And Jesus comes alongside them and says to them, like, what are you talking about? What's going on? And they look at Jesus and they go, are you the only person in the world that doesn't know what's going on? And then they sort of tell Jesus what's going on, but they do so out of a place of despair. That they, they thought that this Jesus was the Messiah, but it's, it's ended with his death. And, and they're in despair. Like, this, this isn't the story we thought would, would happen. This is not what we expected. And then Jesus, and you can almost read the frustration in his voice as he says this to them. He says, How foolish you are, you nitwits. 
you dummies. How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And then Jesus says this, In beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. The Old Testament serves as a roadmap that points to Jesus. Uh, and it does this in a number of ways. And, and, and the first and most obvious is through prophecy, where there are prophecies that very clearly point to Jesus or, or to some aspect of the Messiah. At Christmas, we looked at that song, A Little Town of Bethlehem. And when Herod asks his spiritual advisors, where would Jesus, where would the Messiah be born? They don't even have to think about it. Bethlehem. And then they quote the scripture. Prophecies that are very, very clear. And then the others that are, that are, are vague. And to be honest, there's no agreement uh, on if they, as to whether or not they are a prophecy or not. Think of uh, Genesis 3 after Adam and Eve have sinned. And God says to the serpent, he says, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and uh, you will uh, strike his heel. Now, there are theologians who say that's the first reference to the Messiah. Uh, and then there are others who say, no, it's just uh, predicting that uh, people would hate snakes, snakes would bite people, and people would kill snakes. That, that's all it's saying. Another lesser known way in which the Old Testament points to Jesus is through images, through Pictures, ancient images, prophetic pictures. And like the prophecies, some of these are, are obvious, and some of them are not. And so an obvious one is the Old Testament uh, constantly refers to the coming Messiah as a shepherd. And Jesus himself takes on that role, applying the role of shepherd to himself. Very obvious and well-known. But then there are other images which, again, are just vague, and there's no, there's no consensus. So that famous story where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown into the fire, and then Nebuchadnezzar looks at the fire, and he says, Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. There are those who say, That's Jesus. It's generally, we are fall on that. But there are others who say, no, it's, it's an angel who appears as the Son of God. And so a little bit more vague. The famous prophetic picture that I'm looking at this morning has elements of both. Obvious elements and then slightly more vague elements. Yeah, I'm going to look at both of them in a moment. So let's read together. Exodus chapter 3 from verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that the bush was on fire. Uh, though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight. While the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Jump to verse 13. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? What shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, 
the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. I'm going to ask you to forgive me. I've been a little bit sick this week, and so my voice is probably a little bit raspy. So I'm going to try and accommodate for that by speaking a little bit slower, because already with the South African accent, I get it. So I will try to speak a little bit slower, but uh, sorry for you, that means the sermon will be slightly longer. There are two facets to this image of, of uh, the burning bush that is not consumed. There is the obvious uh, visible image of this burning bush. And then there is the invisible aspect of what happens when Moses steps onto this holy ground. Not a visible picture, but an image of God speaking to him. And I want to start with that first, because that's, that's the most important aspect to this ancient image, this prophetic picture. So Moses is in the middle of nowhere, uh, and he's looking after his, uh, his father-in-law's sheep, and... Uh, sitting there all day, nothing to do, and he looks across and he sees a bush that's burning, but it's not being consumed. Now, obviously, this is a, it's an interesting sight, what's going on. And so he, Moses goes over to this bush, and as he does so, he has this encounter with God where God reveals to him his personal, private, unique, intimate name. Now, we must not... We cannot, we should not underestimate the significance of this encounter. Up until this moment, God has revealed himself in, in names that are also titles. And they've all been based on the ancient Semitic word for a god or a deity, which was the ancient Semitic word El. And so... Uh, God has revealed himself using the standard uh, word for a God at the time. And so he reveals himself as Elohim. Uh, he reveals himself as El Elyon. He reveals himself as El Shaddai. But in this moment, in this moment, God reveals his personal name to Moses for the very first time. Time in human history, God tells us his personal, intimate name. God, Moses says to God, well, what is your name? And God replies, I am who I am. I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. I am has sent me to you. Now, that, that's a little bit clumsy, right? But, but it's meant to be clumsy because God's name is unique. And when God reveals his name, uh, he uses four Hebrew letters, uh, Y-H-W-H. Uh, Hebrew doesn't have vowels, and so it's just these consonants. And to be honest, we don't know how to pronounce it. But the word is, it's a little bit unique, uh, the way it's written, it has uh, past aspects to it, it has present aspects, and it has future aspects. Uh, the, the verb at the root of this name that God reveals is, I exist, I be, I exist. So the closest we do come is, I am who I am, or the I am, the great I am. And so we see that in the past, God had revealed through these other names. But yeah, for the very first time is his personal name. Now, why is this important? Why is it important that God reveals himself through his name that means I was, I will be, I exist? Kind of a word that we just don't fully comprehend. Why is this important? It's important because God is God and I am not. God is the great I am. I am the not so great I am not. 
God exists outside of time and space. We are very limited by time and space. God has all knowledge. Our knowledge is very, very limited. God being God is outside our comprehension. We cannot fully understand him. It's impossible to. I mean, that's the very nature of God, is that we just can't understand him. We can have glimpses, but we cannot comprehend who he is. Job's friend Zophar, despite saying many wrong things, says one thing right when he says this. He says to Job, can you fathom the depths of God or discover the limits of the Almighty? They are higher than the heavens. What can you do? They are deeper than Shoal. What can you know? It's a rhetorical question. Nothing. Prophet Isaiah says, do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the ever everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. Paul to the followers in Rome says, Oh, how great are God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. How impossible it is for us to understand his decisions and his ways. God is God, is completely transcendent. He is completely out there. He is out of our grasp if it's left to us. He exists before our time began. He will exist when time comes to an end. He exists outside of time now. He exists inside of time now. He exists outside of space and, and all of the universe and all of creation. He exists within all of creation, all of the universe. He's completely transcendent. And if we were left to our own devices, if it were left up to us, we would never, never understand anything about him. Left up to us. God is so transcendent. We would never even be able to understand even the slightest uh, information or, or just character of what he's like. God is absolutely transcendent, and that's what his name means. I, I am, I was, I will be. God is transcendent, but he's also imminent. He's right here. At the root of his name is, is that verb, I exist. I exist. I am the God who is out there. But I'm also the God who is right here. I am the God who exists outside of time and space. But I am the God who is right here. We could never begin to know God left up to us. And so, Yahweh has chosen to make himself known to us. H.G. Wood writes, God would not be God if he could be fully known to us. And God would not be God if he could not be known at all. We spoke last week about being deliberate about sacred spaces. For those of you who weren't able to make last week, a sacred space is a moment where time just pauses. Where the time that we're used to just stops for a moment. And we have a moment where we commune with God, or we're silent and God speaks to us. We said we're going to be deliberate about that, so I want to do that right now. I want us to have a, a, a sacred space moment right now. So what I want you to do is I want you to just, you can close your eyes, you can bow your head, you can stare at the ceiling, but a moment of quiet where you just allow God to speak to you. Maybe before you, I give you that moment, maybe this morning, God has been 
so, so distant. Maybe this morning, it's been forever since you last saw his hand at work in your life. I want you in this moment to realize that God is right here. He's right here with you. I am. I exist. Father, we thank you for sacred spaces like this. Sacred spaces where you speak to us. And I pray this morning if, uh, for those of us sitting and uh, we're worshiping here today that uh, those of us who feel that God maybe has just abandoned or forsaken you. It's been so long since he spoke to you. Won't you reveal yourself as the God who exists, the I am who is very present. Won't you do that, we ask in, in your name. Amen. So how does this ancient image of Moses, uh, or of God speaking to Moses in the burning bush, how does it point to Jesus? There are some prophetic pictures, there are some ancient images that are retroactively applied to Jesus by someone else. So for example, uh, there's the case of uh, this character called Mel Melchizedek, and Melchizedek uh, he appears just randomly in, in, the, in the Old Testament. We get a glimpse of, of, of him, and then he disappears, completely disappears. And then suddenly pops up in the book of Hebrews. So, for example, in the Old Testament, uh, we read that uh, and Mel Melchizedek, the king of Salem and a priest of God Most High, brought Abram some bread and wine. Innocuous introduction, Right? But then in the, the author of the book of Hebrews retroactively applies this image to Jesus. The author of the book of Hebrews said, God qualified Jesus as a perfect high priest. And God designated him to be a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. So there are some ancient images that are applied by others to, to Jesus. But then there are some images that Jesus appropriates for himself. Ancient images that Jesus takes and then brings it and applies it to himself. And this name of God is one of them. In fact, Jesus is deliberate and intentional and purposeful about taking the name of God and appropriating it for himself. He's incredibly deliberate about this. How does he do this? Well, unfortunately for us, it's not really conveyed in, in English. It is a little bit hard to see in the English, but, but, but not so in the original Greek. About 300 years before Jesus, uh, what is called the Second Temple period, the Hebrew language had almost, uh, it had almost died. There were very few people who spoke Hebrew, and even less people who could write Hebrew. The common language was Aramaic or Greek. And God, in his providence, brings a man into the picture who will, who will rescue Hebrew, but also enable us to see what Jesus means. This man was a, a man called Ptolemy II. And Ptolemy II rises to the throne and becomes a pharaoh, of Egypt. Now, the funny thing is, he wasn't Egyptian at all. He was completely Macedonian, Greek. His father was Ptolemy I, who was Alexander the Great's right hand man, his favored general. And Ptolemy II hears about the Hebrew scriptures, and, and he's interested. He wants to try and understand the Jewish people. And so, 
he decrees that the ancient Hebrew scriptures should be written into Greek. And so 72 Hebrew scholars spend a long time writing the ancient Hebrew scriptures into Greek. We call this the Septuagint. And it's helpful because there are certain Hebrew words that, to be honest, we don't understand. But having a Greek version of the Old Testament, suddenly it brings new light. And so we understand what we wouldn't have understood if we didn't have it. When these translators came to this name of God, I, uh, I am who I am, when they came to this name, they recognized that in Hebrew, it was meant to be clumsy. It was meant to be difficult to understand. And they wanted to convey this into the Greek so that it wasn't lost on Greek speakers. And so they came up with the phrase, ego amy. Ego amy. And ego amy literally is translated as I, I am. I, I am. Ego amy, I I am. About 250 years after the Septuagint is written, Jesus arrives on the scene. And because predominantly Greek was spoken, he appropriates that phrase, ego eimi, for himself. He applies it to himself. And on occasion, it's subtle. For example, I said the ancient uh, image of a shepherd was found in the Old Testament and then in the New. Uh, Jesus applies the, uh, the picture of a, a shepherd to himself, but he doesn't say, I am the good shepherd, which would be standard. He says, ego amy, I, I am the good shepherd. Now in English, which is translated as I'm the good shepherd, so we miss that. But on other occasions, Jesus is not subtle at all. On other occasions, he very clearly links himself to God in the burning, speaking to Moses in the burning bush by appropriating that phrase, ego amy. In John chapter 8, Jesus is having this uh, very deep discussion and develops more into an argument with the Pharisees. And it starts off with an insult. It starts off, and the Pharisees are talking about, you know, the father of Israel and, and who they come from, says, say to Jesus, at least we know who our father is. Do you get what they're saying? At least we know who our father is. And anyway, the, the, the discussion develops. And it finally comes to kind of a, a, a head when uh, they say, Abraham is our father. When Jesus says, well, even your father Abraham looked forward to me. And they, they just laugh. They just laugh and they go, you aren't even 50 years old, and you claim to have seen Abraham. You're not, you're not even 50, but you claim to have seen our father Abraham. And Jesus replies, he says this, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was born, I, I am. Before Abraham was born, ego amy, Jesus was absolutely clear about associating himself with Yahweh, God himself. He was absolutely clear. And you know who, got, you know who understood this? The people hearing him. The people listening to him, they got it straight away. We may miss it, but not them. After Jesus says, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was born, I, I am. And immediately the Jews pick up rocks 
to stone him to death. At Jesus' trial, just before his execution, the high priest is he's interviewing Jesus. He's trying to get out of him what he tried to get him to say who he is. And eventually he just asks him the, the, the blunt question. He says, are you, are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? Are you the Messiah? And Jesus responds, Ego Amy. Ego Amy, I, I am. And the high priest responds by tearing his clothes, shouting, blasphemy. You've heard him. You've heard him. He's claiming to be God. Jesus left no doubt that he was Yahweh. He left no doubt by linking himself to the revelation of God in Exodus 3 in the burning bush. And scripture is at pains to point this out. John uses a very unique word. He uses the word logos. You may have probably, probably heard that word before to the, to the Jews. Uh, logos referred to the words that came out of God's mouth when he created the heavens and the earth. To, to the Greeks, the, the, the word logos referred to the unseen, unknown force that existed outside of, uh, outside of uh, earth and the heavens. And John says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Jesus unequivocally connects himself to the name of God revealed to Moses in the burning bush because Jesus is God. He's not similar to God. He's not a, a representative, a, a, a slight reflection of. He is God. He is. Paul writing to the church in, in Colossae says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This biblical truth of Jesus being God, of associating himself as ego Amy with I am who I am, is absolutely important when we turn to the next image, which is this idea of the bush being burning but not being consumed. So Moses approaches this, uh, this bush that's burning and it's not consumed. And I mean, if, if it was us, we'd also kind of wander over to see what this is. And as he does so, God says, Moses, stop. Take off your sandals, you now on holy ground. And the moment God speaks to him, we're told that Moses hid his face and he was afraid. In Acts chapter 7, Peter speaking, uses the word, uh, he trembled with fear. And that's an appropriate response to coming face to face with God. God's nature and his characteristic and he's just who he is he is beyond our grasp it is we can understand what he's revealed to us but he's god it's he's beyond our grasp but if he's if the understanding of who he is is beyond our grasp so is our understanding of the power and the might that he has you may not realize this and you may not feel this, considering inflation and the cost of houses. You may not realize this or even feel this, but, but planet Earth is the best place to be in the universe. It is the best place to be in the universe. Right here, right where we are, is the safest place in all of creation. You know why? Because the universe has about a bazillion ways to kill you. 
from black holes that will suck every atom out of your being one by one to cosmic winds that will rip you to shreds in a microsecond. The universe has a bazillion ways to kill you. One of the ways the universe can kill you is exposure to incredible heat. Incredible heat. You think the summer of 2021 with the heat dome was bad? You ain't seen nothing. The brightest, sorry, the furthest object that we can see from Earth with just a telescope uh, is, is a, a quasar called 3C273. Quasars are areas of very hot plasma around black holes, and as they circle, they get hotter and hotter. Quasar 3C273 is 2.4 billion light years away from us. 2.4 billion light years. But it's so bright, and the reason we can see it is because of its brightness. How bright? Quasar 3C273 is, get this, 4 trillion times brighter than our sun. 4 trillion times brighter than our sun. And it's so bright because it's so hot. In fact, Quasar 3C273 is the hottest place in the universe. How hot, you may ask? 10 trillion degrees Celsius. 10 trillion degrees Celsius. For those of you still using the ungodly system, that's 18 trillion Fahrenheit. That's hot. The light from our sun takes eight and a half minutes to reach us. Eight and a half minutes uh, is the time from when light leaves the sun and hits us. Quasar 3C273 is 2.4 billion years away. But if you brought it close enough that the light from Quasar 3C273 would take 36 years to reach us. So eight and a half minutes compared to 36 years. At that distance, Quasar 3C273 would be brighter than our sun. Brighter than our sun. There would be tremendous sunsets and sunrises, but we wouldn't enjoy them because we would be dead. Why do I tell you this? I tell you this because our universe is powerful beyond our understanding. There are forces in our universe that we, we would never even be able to comprehend how strong they are. We, we would never be able to grasp just how much power and forces is going on in our universe. Never. How much more power? Do you think the one who created the universe has? How much more power does Yahweh have if our universe has power that we cannot comprehend? And because of this power, this might, Moses' response is appropriate and it is completely natural. King David says, Fire goes before him and, he con and consumes his foes on every side. His lightning lights up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. 
Moses would later say to the people of Israel, the Lord your God is a consuming fire. Moses approaches this bush that's burning but not consumed. Why is it not being consumed? Do the hills melt like wax before Yahweh? Yes, they do. Is Yahweh present in this moment? Yes, he is. Has he lost his power and that's why the, the, the burning bush is not consumed? No. He's present with all of his power and his might. So why is the bush not consumed? Why is Moses not consumed? Why are the sheep not consumed? In fact, why, why, why is the pasture not consumed? Why, why is the whole earth just not consumed if the God of all creation, who has power beyond our understanding, is present? Why is Moses not turned to dust? You know why? Because of the grace and mercy and compassion of I am who I am. And that's the only reason. The only reason Prophet Jeremiah would later write, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. But the burning bush, this image of a God, I am who I am, I exist, I always have, I always will, this God, I am who I am with, with more power than we could ever understand and yet because of his compassion doesn't consume us. Is just a glimpse of the grace and the mercy that is to come. It's just a glimpse. thousand four hundred years after Moses heard God speak from the burning bush God himself ego Amy I I am makes an appearance John after saying that the word is God, says future verses later, he says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full full, full of grace and truth, full of grace and truth, because of ego Amy, we are not consumed. So what? So what? In 1995, uh, a, a, an artist uh, by the name of Joan Osborne wrote a, a haunting song. And the song is called uh, One of Us. One of Us. And if you listen to the song, and I encourage you to do that, because the music is, is, is haunting. And it's haunting because... In the song, Joan Osborne asks a question that she never answers. She asks a question that she never answers, and that's why the song is, 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 is haunting. It's almost sad, because she asks this profound question 
that she doesn't answer. Joan Osborne, in her song, One of Us, the first line is, lines of this. What if God was one of us? If God had a name, what would it be? And would you call it to his face? What if God had a name? What if God was one of us? I wish Joan Osborne had finished her song revealing the truth. That God was one of us. That God did have a name. And that name is Jesus. Ego Amy, I, I am. And because Jesus is ego Amy, he has done what no one other than God himself can do. Through his death and resurrection and ascension, he has made us right. with our Heavenly Father. Because he's ego Amy, only he could do that. And because he's done that, unlike Moses, when Moses came before God and, and realized where he was, and his confidence evaporated in a second, in contrast, because of who Jesus is, we can enter God's throne room with confidence. Because of Ego Amy, the writer of Hebrews would put it like this, talking about what Jesus has done. He says, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And you wonder why it's called the good news. I want us to close with another sacred space moment. Just another moment of just being in God's presence. And for some of you, this may be a moment of just rededicating your life and who you are back to God, back to Ego Amy, because of what he's done. But maybe there's someone here this morning that maybe you've known all about Jesus, but you actually have never asked Ego Amy to be your Lord and Savior. You've never done that. I want to give you a moment to do that. So let's have a, another moment of silence as we have a sacred space and be aware that we are in the presence of God. Heavenly Father, we recognize that you are the great. I am who I am, the great I am. And with that comes 
might and power beyond our comprehension. But we thank you that we are not consumed because of ego Amy, who has acted on our behalf. And so we have grace and mercy and compassion from you toward us because of ego Amy, I, I am. And we thank you for that. Father, I just pray for everyone here this morning that maybe their relationship with you has been non-existent. I, I want to pray for everyone who feels just or realizes that that's where they're at spiritually. I just want to pray for them that there would be a renewed desire to be in a relationship with you because of what Jesus has done. And then, Father, if there's anyone here this morning who has actually never acknowledged or accepted Jesus for who he is, I pray for them too. Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy and your compassion. And give you praise for that. In Jesus' name, amen. If you did pray one of those prayers this morning, please do not leave. Please do not leave without speaking to either Pastor Matt or Pastor Dave or, or myself. Please do not leave without doing that. I'm excited for the series. I'm excited what it's going to reveal about who Jesus is. I'm excited uh, to see from uh, all of our, our sermons what it uh, reveals about what Jesus has done for us. Pastor Matt is up next week. Is that right, Pastor Matt? We think it's Pastor Matt next week. It will be one of us. We promise you that. Uh, let's, let's close with just a, a song of worship.